You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I'll tell you more about this new podcast later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by Josh Campbell, who's a CNN law enforcement analyst providing insight on crime, justice, and national security issues. Prior to joining CNN, he was a supervisory special agent with the FBI and served as special assistant to the FBI director. During his 12-year career, he conducted numerous high-profile terrorism and kidnapping investigations, served overseas in multiple diplomatic and operational assignments, and managed the Bureau's interagency communication response strategy following crisis and incidents. So welcome, Josh. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks, Vince. I'm a big big fan, so thanks for having me. We have a lot to talk about, uh, even when we started having a conversation about doing this podcast a little while ago, there's been 20 things since. <laughs> and we would normally start chronologically and work our way to the present, but you just returned from Istanbul covering a murder investigation with international consequences. So for before we dig into your bio, before we kind of work our way up from the past, let's talk briefly about this case because it, it, there's a lot of going on here. There's a collision of intelligence professionals, diplomats, journalists, all coming together in a crazy story that continues to evolve every single day. Absolutely. So let me ask you about this, because this is something where these are two allies of the United States, the Saudis and the Turks. I mean, Turkey is a member of NATO, and Saudi is one of our top allies in the Middle East. Uh, How ugly is this with us being kind of pulled into the middle of it? Yeah, so, I mean, you nailed it as far as uh, how thorny the issue is when you have two allies of the United States. Obviously, you know, with Turkish authorities, we have you know strong intelligence sharing relationships with them. And then obviously with Saudi, uh, you know, their position as a regional ally obviously is very important on a number of fronts. And so when you have those two things colliding with an international murder investigation, it's it's made things you know very difficult, obviously, for the United States government. And it's been interesting to watch how the Trump administration has tried to kind of thread the needle and, and work their way through this issue. Obviously, the president has received a lot of criticism um, for accepting uh, essentially on face value the initial Saudi uh, claims about what happened. Problem, though, is I saw and even being on the ground in Istanbul is that the, the Saudi narrative has continued to shift 
you know, first it started out that, okay, you know, we weren't involved, and then it was maybe this was a set of rogue actors, and then now the intelligence apparatus there is essentially bearing the brunt of the of the blame. Um, and so you have kind of, you know, obviously the shifting narrative, which makes it difficult to believe. Uh, but also on the Turkish side, they're also, you know, not completely pure here because we haven't seen a lot of the evidence uh, that so far has been making its way in strategic leaks in Turkish uh, newspapers. And I can tell you, you know, be, being there on the ground in Istanbul, there is a direct line from the intelligence apparatus to some of the very friendly state uh, media sources. And, you know, they would kind of dole out nuggets of information. Take, for example, this audio recording, which, you know, none of us have heard. Uh, but, you know, there were slowly these strategic leaks about what what it was that the Turkish authorities had. But we didn't really have the full picture. So, again, you have two sides that are obviously posturing for their own reasons. Um, and that's all kind of come together with obviously the United States caught in the middle. And then you, you know, couple that with the fact this is a journalist. And so it's re- receiving international uh, interest. It's really made for, for a very thorny issue. And again, you know, we're going now on a month since the killing and we really don't have a lot of answers. Well, I, it seems like the Turks are trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to get information out that makes them look good without completely burning sources and methods. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about how they have a recording inside the Saudi embassy in Istanbul and the surveillance photos and footage uh, that have been released and trickled out are giving away some sources and methods, but it seems like they're trying to hold back so that they don't give the whole show away. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And, you know, in talking with some of the intelligence sources on the ground there, uh, that seemed to be a part of a strategy that, you know, I was talking with one person uh, who said, look, you know, we, we're not releasing this right now because we really don't have to. I mean, if you think about it from a strategic standpoint, I mean, they're they're basically now putting the Saudis back on their heels, um, you know, but for the allegations that this consulate was wired up, that they had bugged this building uh, the Saudi narrative may have may have held. They may have been able to kind of get away with this uh, body double, you know, that that we were reporting at CNN that you know left out the back door, and you know, but for this audio, they might have been able to say, "Look, he left. We don't know what happened to him." But I think when the Turkish authorities came out and started kind of with those strategic leaks, saying, "No, no, we we bugged this facility. We have audio." That then, you know, obviously made things very uncomfortable for Saudi authorities. And again, in talking with, uh, you know, intelligence sources there on the ground, they mentioned that, look, you know, we don't have to really lay this out right now. Uh, it, it's it's doing what we want right now. And then one, one other thing that's interesting, Vince, that they mentioned is that, at least from a strategic standpoint from the Turkish government, they said, you know, our goal isn't to topple the Saudi government. I mean, if we released audio that was damning in nature and showed, you know, a, a brutal murder or at least, you know, indications of a brutal murder, um, then they were they were afraid that that might actually cause these these uh, you know consequences maybe beyond what they were actually intending. They said, "Look, we're not trying to topple the Saudi government. We're simply trying to find those who are responsible and hold them accountable. And if that goes up to the crown prince, well, so be it." Uh, but again, we're still very much in this diplomatic tit for tat. And you know, recently, uh, most lately, uh, recently, CIA Director Haspel went over. Uh, you know, it's been reported that she actually had heard some of this audio. So again, it'll be interesting to see what the U.S. government does as far as coming out and now confirming. Uh, you know, what what intelligence they have or if they just leave it to, you know, continue to be a more of a regional issue. But again, it's not going away. And this is one of those issues that, you know, obviously the White House is very adept at changing the narrative um, on any given day, you know, as far as a news cycle goes. But I'm confident that this is an issue that's going to continue to come back because it, 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 it's, it's simply t- there's so much brutality there when you think about a journalist working for an American outlet that then went overseas and was killed. Um, you know, we have to have answers to, to what happened there. 
Well, it's not just a journalist. He was a, a green card holding resident alien. He was somebody who was legally, you know, uh, uh, a permanent resident of the United States. I mean, while it's not full fledged citizenship, it's somebody that we're supposed to protect a little bit. Well, and that was the issue, right? So, so you know, we'd receive reporting that he had applied uh, for for an LPR for a green card. Uh, there were questions as far as whether he actually got one, whether he actually was a permanent resident. But you know, setting that aside, as you as you mentioned, I mean, this is someone living in the United States. And again, the question comes down to: Is there, at least in the mind of the White House, an interest? Uh, on behalf of the United States and finding out what happened. Now, there's long been this question of, as far as, you know, should the president get the FBI involved? And he actually said at one point, well, we have investigators over there. Uh, that is not consistent with what we have been, uh, f- you know, determining from from folks that we've been talking to as far as a level of involvement by the FBI. Uh, but again, if, if he was really interested in getting to the bottom of what happened, he could easily direct the FBI to, uh, you know, ask questions. Obviously, they would require permission before they conducted any investigative activity on the ground in either Istanbul or Riyadh. But um, again, just I think even signaling that he's interested, that he wants American investigators to really dig into this, uh, I think would say a lot as far as how important the United States government sees this. And I think the fact that we haven't seen that actually speaks volumes. You'd mentioned that the, the intelligence services and the Saudis are, are taking the brunt of the blame for this. And in many cases, people are arguing they've been scapegoated because the, you know, the Saudi government, it's pretty aristocratic. It's pretty authoritarian. It's not like it's a, a representative democracy. That there's very little that happens inside the kingdom that doesn't come from the top. So, is this the perception of most people within not only the U.S. government but also the Turks that uh, they're, they're, it's very it's very non not believable to think that this was some kind of rogue operation by the Saudi intelligence service? So people in and outside of government uh, that, that I've been speaking with and doing reporting on this story seem to come to the same conclusion. And that is something uh, with such international ramifications as, you know, this is someone who's a very public figure. This isn't just, you know, some unknown entity who then disappeared. This is someone who was very well known and obviously, you know, was uh, working with the Washington Post. And so there's there's that Washington angle. And again, someone who who people knew about. So the idea that you know, say they say they were actually intending to render him back to Saudi Arabia, which is one of the one of the narratives. Again, the idea that that would happen absent some type of knowledge from the highest levels of Saudi government is just simply not believable. And then you take that with, OK, if the goal was actually to execute him, to kill him, um, which, again, the, the narrative is shifting. But that's some of the latest reporting we've seen. And Turkish prosecutors have indicated that, at least according to their investigation, uh, they indicate this was premeditated murder. So, again, if, if that were the, the intended goal, that would also have to go up to the highest levels of the Saudi government. So it, it, it's simply not believable to think that that there weren't high-level officials who were, if, if not giving the green light, then at least were aware of what was going on. But again, it's you know it's the classic uh, you know <laughs> intelligence operations when things go south. Uh, you know, you start pointing fingers and, you know, folks in the intelligence community know that oftentimes they're going to to, to catch a lot of the blowback. Um, again, just so many questions because it is so opaque as far as the operations within the Saudi kingdom. We don't know if this was an intelligence uh, operation, you know, trying to do something that they thought the government might like uh, or if it was something that was directed on high. But again, it's just it's so difficult to grasp and believe that something with such international ramifications wouldn't have been signed off at high levels. Even after 9-11, where the vast majority of the hijackers were Saudi. There's been a bit of a a truce between the Saudi royal family and journalists around the world. There hasn't been a lot of deep digging, at least among mainstream journalists, of the money and corruption inside Saudi Arabia. It seems like killing a journalist, or however you want to qualify him. I know some people have been like, not he's just a 
he was a contributor to the post but people in journalism are treating him as like a journalist seems pretty stupid for the saudis because the best way to get back at them from a journalistic perspective is to just dig deep that's right no it, it it's right and, and i mean the thing the whole operation seems so ham-handed as far as the target the operation the planning and then what do you do if it goes south um, again, it's, you know, I, I know the Saudi intelligence services to be, you know, very good at what they do. So the fact that, that this thing was just, you know, so ridiculously planned and, and you know, and executed, uh, so to speak, I mean, it's, again, it, it just kind of smacks of, of just, you know, something that we're not used to coming from, from that government. Obviously, there are the human rights issues. We know that they're there, and you're right, that, you know, it seems, at least in the last few years, that those those types of, you know, human rights violations have made their way off the front pages because folks in the United States government continue to look at, okay, how how uh, strong the Saudis are as a strategic ally, and I think they often turn a blind eye to a lot of things. But this has kind of brought that back into the mix and brought back, you know, obviously – to the front of mind for a lot of people in this business that, look, this is a regime that does engage in brutality. And the fact that they would either render or, you know, set out to kill uh, a contributor, a journalist, whatever you want to call them, again, shows that that, that level of brutality is still there. Uh, the question is now, you know, what, what does the U.S. government do about it? Is this something that they're just going to look at and say, well, the strategic alliance is too important. Um, it's not risk. It's not worth risking uh, everything that we're, we're benefiting regionally from the Saudis to, to actually hold them accountable. I, I think that's the, that's the way it's headed, because we saw the president actually come out immediately and essentially take, um, you know, these arms sales off the table and say, no, this, we're not going to lose billions of dollars over over this journalist, which, again, is such a craven thing to think about. But but that shows the mindset um, of, of how a lot of folks, you know, deal with. And, and we know, I mean, folks, you, you and I and other folks in, in the business know that, you know, diplomacy and international relations and especially intelligence is is not a black and white business. There are lots there are so many shades of gray and it's very much zero sum and that, you know, you're dealing with one regime may impact your dealing with another regime. Uh, and so you have to make a cost benefit analysis and obviously calculated action. But again, the question comes down to a lot of people when, when you look at the brutality of what happened. Do our values matter more to us than a strategic alliance or the bottom line when it comes to weapon sales? Uh, sadly, it looks as though those issues are um, at least being held, uh, you know, at least weighted higher than, you know, than our own values. So let's let, let's take a walk back and, and now work our way up chronologically. And let's let's talk about you and your decision to join the FBI. Is, is this something you worked towards specifically in college or was it something that once you had graduated from school, you thought, oh, the FBI might be a good idea. Yeah, so I had, I'd always had an interest, um, you know, even in high school in, in international relations and, you know, things going on outside the U.S. border. Um, and so I knew that I, I suspected that my career track would, would be in foreign policy or, or some type of uh, related field. Um, I was actually in I was a freshman at the University of Texas at Austin uh, one week in and you know 9/11 happens and for me that that really sealed the deal where you know at at that point my trajectory was more you know looking more to go the the diplomacy route um but for me th that really sealed sealed the deal as far as okay no this is something that that I want to do as far as um you know help investigate and 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 you know not only work with foreign nations but also really dig into you know the investigative side to use my my skills um you know, those skill sets to, to actually benefit the U.S. government and protect the American people. And so after 9-11, I mean, again, one weekend of my college career, there was no question that that was the direction that I wanted to head. And so everything past that was oriented um, towards joining the Bureau. 
and I had, you know, obviously, you know, taken a course load and studied foreign language. And, um, you know, I actually interned for the Bureau my junior year. And then upon graduation was uh, was fortunate enough to join full time. Well, a lot of what you describe sounds like it would be also relevant to other agencies. You know, talk about foreign policy and you talked about things about wanting to do things overseas. Uh, that would certainly lend itself to potentially a another three-letter agency that we know and love. Uh, what drove you to the FBI in particular? Yeah, so so the FBI, um, I, so I'd, I'd you know done research and had learned as much as I could about the organization. And up at that to that point, I thought of the FBI as a purely domestic force. Uh, just you know the FBI agents on the street that you think about that are working bank robberies and crime and and you know obviously uh, threats here at home. But in doing the research, I learned that there's actually this this. Uh, you know, other other side of the FBI, which to be sure is a lot smaller than the rest of the operation, but it's the the side that deals with foreign governments, the inter- international operations side, uh, the extraterritorial investigative side, where they actually will deploy agents overseas to work with foreign governments, and they have agents that are assigned in embassies. And so, as I learned more about that, uh, that that was kind of the the the, uh, the melding of, of two interests. So you had you know the law enforcement investigative side, but also the foreign policy side. So that was of interest. And I'll say. Um, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, again, it would be ego on my part to think, okay, I'm, I'm only going to uh, apply to one organization and I know I'm going to get in. That wasn't the case. So I, I applied to CIA as well uh, and went through that process because, again, it's, you know, obviously an organization with a tremendous mission. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk about uh, some, some of my work with them embedded overseas, but just, just great, great people, true patriots. And at the end of the day, it just actually ended up the, the FBI was a lot faster than CIA. Um, when it came to the application process, so again, I, I knew the I, I knew and thought that okay, the bureau is where I'm headed. Um, but again, it's it, I didn't totally discount you know the the agency that was obviously another um, organization that would allow one to fulfill those same goals, you know, patriotism and service, uh, you know, in in the national security space. So we have a lot of listeners who are undergrads, grad students, early career professionals that still haven't figured out what they want to be when they grow up. Can you provide any advice for those? Who want this kind of a career focused on foreign policy, but also, you know, serving the nation uh, and how to get into the FBI? Because it's become a lot, not a lot harder. It was hard when you got in, certainly, but it's become very difficult to get into some of these high profile agencies. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that that I like to do and I still do, even uh, my post FBI career, is to talk to young people that are interested in either career in law enforcement or intelligence and, you know, field questions and serve as that sounding board. Obviously, there are things that I wish I knew when I was applying and joining. Uh, and, and one of the things that I often tell people, uh, and I'll speak specifically about the FBI, is that there's this um, this idea that in order to, to join, you know, become a federal agent, to join federal law enforcement, you need to study uh, criminology or, you know, some type of uh, behavioral science or criminal justice. Uh, all those things are great, obviously, that, you know, police departments around the country are, are filled with people with that with those expert that expertise um but the fbi it's actually there's a there's a different uh there's a different strategy one can employ uh to make themselves more competitive and it's not to look at the criminal justice side but it's to look at okay what are the critical issues that the fbi is looking for right now and these things kind of shift they kind of change but one of them that's always there uh at least as of late since 9-11 is a foreign language and i'll tell you you know when you have people that are on paper 
you know, equally qualified. You've you've done the interview. They've looked like solid people. But one of them speaks a foreign language, and especially a hard foreign language. Uh, in the FBI, it's a no-brainer. Okay, that person is now ahead of the pack. Um, and especially in, on kind of opening the aperture a little bit, so talking about the intelligence community in general, and I'd throw in state and, you know, the diplomatic side – there are a lot of smart people in the United States government that are good at formulating ideas that that are uh, you know that can orbit tough issues and formulate strategies and you know obviously do the 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 meat of the work that involves involved in diplomacy and law enforcement and national security but if you can't communicate that to a foreign government or you don't bring that added benefit to the table where, you know, you know the hard languages, you can, you know, bring something to the table that other people don't have, then you're just, you know, one of many. And so that's a long-winded way of saying that, you know, the, the language uh, abilities are so key and so critical and they're never going away. So if you're a college freshman right now, I mean, if you're a, a high school sophomore right now that's listening to this podcast, start studying those hard languages because that's going to move you to the head of the pack. Uh, and again, you, you want to you study a language language that is uh, obviously of interest to you and you know with the language training comes cultural training so you know find out what your interests what your area of the world um, th- th- you know that interests you is and then and then pursue that but the sooner you start the more competitive you're going to be yeah, and, and avoid sanskrit and latin <laughs> that's right <laughs> russian chinese arabic farsi spanish yeah those are the ones um you got it exactly so you joined the fbi in 2005 which is just after the formal creation of the capital I, capital C intelligence community, the passage of ERTPA, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. So you kind of got in not knowing things any differently than what had been created with the reorganization of the intelligence community after 9-11. But were there difficulties adjusting among those who had been around? You know, joined this unit uh, in L.A. Was, did it, you talked already about the exoterritorial squad were the there were, there were olders at FBI who were kind of trying to figure out the new way things were going, or was it pretty smooth sailing? No, it wasn't smooth sailing. And you know, with within the FBI, and you have to think about that that space and time. So, you know, obviously on the heels of two thousand four, you have the nine eleven commission report, and you know, one of the uh, the topics of intense conversation from that period, which I think a lot of folks have forgotten about um, with the distance of time, but a lot of people inside the FBI know it very well. And, you know, I'll bring up a familiar name who's now you know made his way back into the headlines. But uh, Bob Mueller, when he was the director of the FBI and going through this period, I don't think folks really appreciate how close the FBI came to being split into two organizations. So there was this debate as far as whether the MI5 model in the UK is the, the model that the, the U.S. government should adopt, where you have, you know, you leave the law enforcement to the cops. We'll carve that side of the FBI off. They can continue to do the bank robberies and everything they've done. But then we need, we bring this new intelligence component that won't have arrest powers, but, you know, they'll be able to dig into a lot of these threats. Again, the goal was stopping something like 9-11 and finding all the different failures that were there and trying to trying to work backwards to figure out if there was another agency, if there were people with different authorities, what would they be able to do? And I have to tell you, you know, inside the organization, it came so close uh, to, to being, you know, seriously considered in Congress that, okay, this is legislation we're going to enact or at least, you know, put forward. Uh, but it was really Bob Mueller who was leading that charge, saying, no, the FBI can handle this. We've handled intelligence since our founding, uh, uh, you know, 100 years ago, you know, at that point. Um, and so this is something that we can do. And so I, to answer your question, at that point, you know, once you have these these new laws and, and new authorities coming in, people were still a little skittish thinking, OK, any t- any time, if we screw this up, 
then we're going to go back to that debate whether the FBI is really up, up to the task. And obviously the Bureau has shown, I mean, I'm biased, but the Bureau has shown they are up to the task. You look at the number of uh, threats that have been mitigated since since that period of time up to now. I mean, it's really incredible when, when you think about some of these operations, most known, some not known. Um, a lot of work with international partners that's, that's not known as far as, you know, really leveraging relationships and doing the work the FBI and, and the CIA, for that matter, are, 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 you know, they're tasked to do. And then one other interesting part, uh, as far as a cultural shift, you know, we always talk in this kind of now cliche post 9-11 about this, uh, you know, before it was you had to have a need to know, and then afterwards, you have, it's a need to share, kind of a reorienting of, of a mindset of how you actually share information with different agencies. But, and I remember very vividly talking with a very senior FBI person um, at the time, right, right when I first came in, asking this very same question, like, how hard has this been? Uh, to really move to this shift in the intelligence community where now you're you're being a lo- little more forthcoming. And he said it's actually it's going very well, but not motivated by the reason you think. I mean, the CIA, FBI uh, are obviously lashed up sharing information, not because they think, okay, this is a great thing to do, but it, it's actually a little more sinister than that. They're saying no one wants to be uh, holding on to a piece of intelligence that wasn't shared when something goes boom. And again, whatever the motivation is, that that's the right way to move forward as far as you know getting information and sharing it. And so this was all taking place in that period of time that you're talking about. So you have this this culture, and even in the FBI today, I'll tell you just uh, uh, you know very briefly on on this topic, you you still have remnants of of that that mindset where there are people that that looked at at what Bob Mueller did in in the wake of nine eleven and said no, you know the FBI, the bread and butter is are, are the arrests, the criminal work, the drugs, the bank robberies, and then this entire new. Um, you know, mindset that was, you know, not only forced on us, but people coming in like me who came in, you know, after after 9-11 who wanted to work the national security side. So it wasn't punitive whenever you came in and you were assigned to a terrorism squad. That was something that you actually wanted to do. So with time, it's just become accepted that that's the way the, the organization is. I mean, you, you can do both. We have a national security mission and a criminal mission. Um, and again, you know, things take time, right? You always talk about, you know, moving the uh, changing direction of the aircraft carrier, uh, you know, doesn't happen immediately. And so it, it's taken time, but I, I've seen this cultural shift where it's just now accepted um, that, okay, this is this is what we're going to do. We're going to incorporate intelligence. We're going to, you know, really focus on the national security space while we do these other things. Well, when I was looking at your bio and I saw that you, you were in the extraterritorial squad starting in 2005 and you were there for several years, what jumped out at me uh, immediately was arguably one of the most infamous terrorist attacks uh, in world history, and at least because of the kind of media coverage it got and because of the impact that it has, and that was Mumbai in 2008. How how involved, I know the FBI was brought in, how involved were you in, in the investigation after that attack? Yeah, so that, that was one of the uh, pivotal cases of my career, uh, and that was actually worked out of the Los Angeles field office where I was assigned. Uh, so the FBI divides the globe into four different regions as far as its extraterritorial responsibility. And Los Angeles essentially covers South Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, and so I was on the team that, that worked um, worked that investigation. And my role, again, this was, you know, no one does anything alone in the FBI. And, and in this type of investigation where, you know, you have so many that are killed, so many that are injured, uh, so many different um, uh there's so much U.S. interest as far as American uh, connection points and communication mediums, and a lot of a lot of ways 
for America to assist with this investigation. Uh, it was it was very much an all hands on deck in the Los Angeles field office. You know, we had a ton of people working on this. Um, we deployed a team forward. These were a lot of the experienced agents who had worked uh, bombings and you know evidence collection and the like, and so they they were working forward. I was I started out initially uh, really trying to dig into the communication mediums that were used. Um, by the attackers. And so that was kind of my expertise in the communication side and the cyber side. Uh, and if you remember at the time, I mean, we take it for granted now, but the Mumbai attack was so sophisticated in that you had controllers that were in Pakistan in a control room watching, you know, banks of live television di- directly communicating with the the attackers, telling them where to go, what to do, the posture of law enforcement, you know, where to, where to, uh, you know, where to fire, I mean, down to a lot of those details. And so what we were trying to figure out, because at this point we assumed that it was being directed at Pakistan, we really couldn't prove it. And so we really had to dig into that communication side. And I can tell you um, a lot lot of stuff I still can't tell you, but we created a lot of – we made a lot of headway in the digital space as far as electronic surveillance um, capabilities uh, based on that case that that ended up – taking a lot of people off the battlefield because a lot of these you know, mediums that they were using were uh, mediums that other uh, terrorist groups were using. And you, being able to dig into the TTPs, the, you know, the tactics and, that these p- attackers were using really opened up a window into what other groups were doing. And so it was just a really a fascinating case um, all, all around as far as the, the ramification. This was another instance, actually, you know, tying it back to Khashoggi, where you had two uh, you know, major countries that were at odds with each other over, uh, you know, a brutal act. And so there were, there were similes there as well that, you know, we were working with state and uh, obviously the diplomatic side and National Security Council. I mean, just it, 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 there were so many, it was so multifaceted. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's one of the investigations that, that really, uh, really had an impact on me. And then just the FBI moving forward, because even domestically, when law enforcement agencies within the United States you know, we are, we're always planning based on the last attack, and that really became the focus to stop a Mumbai-style attack from happening here in the United States. Well, you mentioned that, you know, you're not just the only person in the FBI is their team holistically. That, that's also the case in between agencies where a lot of times you're working overseas the FBI, but you're also working alongside the broader diplomatic mission, which means working with State Department people. The broader national security mission, which means working alongside CIA and DOD personnel. How easy was that interagency cooperation during some of these both like something like Mumbai, a major attack, but also kind of a day to day perspective? So after and I mean, this is this is an unfortunate reality, but after a successful attack or a successful incident, um, the government, the U.S. government fuses together very well. And I've you know worked a number of these incidents uh, from South and Southeast Asia where you'd have a bombing or you have a killing. And and, you know, again, the agencies that the the whatever turf issues that were, were in place before uh, quickly go away. And so you have diplomats, you have FBI agents, you have CIA officers and analysts that are really coming together to figure out, OK, what happened here? And again, the goal is to find the people that are responsible um, where where it gets a little grayer is when you don't actually have an incident, but you might have a threat. And so, um, you know, I, I talked earlier about how we share information. Uh, the the one area that, you know, obviously agencies try to keep their cards close to the vest comes to sources. Um, and, you know, there were a number of instances where whether it was FBI or CIA or even state through, through their liaison, they would get tips and information um, that, 
would and and I include DOD into that by the way I don't want to forget them um, that they they would get information that would be of interest to the others and we would really want to drill down on okay where did this come from uh, not because we just wanted to know who their source was but because we wanted to figure out okay is this a, a larger threat that we're just not really seeing and so I saw some some issues there uh, interagency and the FBI we weren't pure as well I mean we didn't want to give up everything um, when it came to sources but again there was a kind of that constant reminder that you know if if we don't share as much as we can then, you know, if something happens, will this have been the piece of information that may have helped someone else connect a dot that maybe we didn't see? Uh, and so, again, that's, that's, that's something that continues through time as far as operations. Uh, every time you recruit a source, you try to figure out, okay, what, what interest is this person uh, to other agencies? But, again, you don't want to give up too much. Uh, for for fear of burning that person, so it's a, it's an ongoing struggle. Later on, you served as the national spokesman for the FBI Counterterrorism, Cyber, and International Operations Division. I think that I wonder how maybe this was more difficult than a lot of other things that you did. Just the idea of dissemination of information to the public. Like, how difficult? Like how hard was it to figure out what you can and can't say? I mean, you've already kind of talked about it a little bit here. Like, oh, there's things I can't say, but you want. As a policy, I understand you weren't making the policy or you're enacting it, but as a policy, the FBI has to make tough calls, just the same way you're talking about the Turkish government, right? Make tough calls and how much to tell the public. You want them to be informed in a democracy, but at the same time, you have to protect sources and methods. Right. I, I think there's always a balance there. And I and I remember debating this with uh, colleagues, you know, from the squad bay in Los Angeles to, um, you know, some jungle overseas where we're working on an operation. And that is, you know, how much of what we're doing does the public need to know? And and it's a constant debate. And there, there's one camp, you know, inside the FBI. And I would say, you know, writ large inside the the intelligence community who says, you know, we do the job that people should just trust that, that you know, we're doing what we need to do. Uh, they don't need to know the specifics. And it's not so much that they just don't want to share information. It's they really look at that through the, through the lens of, OK, what we're doing is so sensitive that we can't be talking about this, um, you know, to, to the public and to the American people. Whereas I tend to tack the other direction. And that is, OK, you can always say something right about what you're doing. Yeah, you're not going to give up important sources and methods. You're not going to give up intelligence. But uh, my viewpoint is that the, the public has to have a certain amount of confidence in their intelligence community because if you look – I mean just go back from you know the church committees where there were all these things that came to light that the, that the public really didn't know about specifically, and it took a lot of time to build that public confidence back up. Whereas if you thought about, okay, what if we, what if we take a different approach and you know, try to assure the, the American people to the extent that we can without giving up sensitive sources that you know, we're on the job, we're on the case, we're doing exactly what they expect, um, and you know, we're doing it lawfully. We're not just you know, running rogue here. And then another issue is, and this is something that is more philosophical, but it's something that I, that I really believe in. And I would tell, um, at once I you know, started working my way up in leadership, I would tell my teams that, look, you know, we are benefiting right now from the FBI brand. So when an FBI agent goes and knocks on someone's door and shows that badge, shows the credentials, there is an immediate sense of trust that one garners from, from the other party. When an FBI agent rises in the courtroom and testifies, there's a certain reputation that comes with that person saying, I'm with the FBI. And what I would tell them is, look, look that wasn't you. You didn't create that. You know, you're benefiting from that, from the work that other people did you know, before you. And a large portion of that is the public affairs, public relations side, and ensuring the public is aware, at least to some extent, of what you're doing. So 
if you are not helping contribute to the strength of that brand, to you know, helping the public understand that it's still the bureau that you remember, that the reputation is still strong, then you're basically just a freeloader because you're benefiting now from everything people did before, before you, but you're not actually contributing to that. So that really drove my interest in the public affairs space is really trying to help tell the FBI story uh, to the public about what it is that we're doing, at least to the extent we can. And then the last part, which is you know fascinating, is that there, especially with law enforcement, not so much on the intelligence side, but with law enforcement, the public is a huge force multiplier when it comes to solving crime. And so, if you're not out there talking about the FBI's top ten most wanted list, and you know talking about fugitives and talking about uh, tips and things that you need from the public, then you're basically you know you're, you're handcuffed because here are all these potential sources of information out there who may assist your case. And that requires you actually telling them a little bit about what you're doing. Well, you just made my segue pretty easy because I was going to reference the letter or the op-ed that you wrote in the Washington Post where you talk a lot about this, where you lay out these exact issues you've been talking about. And and, and so I do want to shift over to your decision to leave the FBI because it certainly sounds like you enjoyed what you were doing. Uh, at the end of your time there, you were the special assistant to Director Jim Comey uh, during the 2016 election season. And you were there on the day he was fired and then shifted over to serve on Andrew McCabe's office. Um, and actually, incidentally, you also, when you became an FBI agent, you were given your badge and credentials by Bob Mueller. So let me ask you about leaving the FBI. And I'm not going to get political. You can do whatever you want. Um, but I do want to ask you about the decision that you made uh, to leave a, a bureau that you seem to really enjoy working for. Yeah, so... I mean, you nailed it. I mean, the FBI is an organization like any other institution on the planet. Obviously, I'm biased. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in there. But the, the work, the people, I mean, it's incredible. Um, but if you think about what was going on at the end of 2016 and early 20 and throughout 2017, essentially, you know, you mentioned politics. I don't like talking about politics either, but it's hard to talk about that period of time without talking about politics. And when I, what I describe, what I'm about to describe, I don't want people to, to think what, what I'm saying is partisan because it's not. I, I don't care what party you are. But it is political because the FBI faced a tidal wave um, of political, attempted political interference and, you know, just, just all out nonsense on a daily basis uh, in a way that they had never, they'd never faced before. We've had presidents that have been under FBI investigation. You know, if you think about Watergate or Iran-Contra or, you know, Whitewater, Lewinsky, all of that. I mean, you've had, uh, you know, incidents and periods of time where the FBI and the White House were at odds, and it was uncomfortable for the White House. But we've never seen what we're seeing now, and that is a an overt—I mean, they're not even hiding it—but an overt um, campaign to undermine— federal law enforcement to discredit the FBI, to discredit the Justice Department, and to discredit Bob Mueller for the sole purpose of undermining whatever results they actually come up with. And, you know, again, that, that's how people look at things through political lenses. They think, okay, who is my enemy? What is the potential liability? And how do I undermine them? And that's fair game of politics, right? If campaigns want to go back and forth with each other and say, I'm better than this person, this person's terrible. But when you start using those same tactics against law enforcement, against the FBI, there are unintended long-term consequences that, that folks like President Trump and his allies, folks like Devin Nunes, either they don't appreciate or they just don't care about because the slow chipping, you know, constant chipping away at the FBI's reputation 
is going to cause long-term consequences for public safety. And what I mean by that, if you go back to what we were just talking about, when an FBI agent stands in front of someone and is asking for assistance, their willingness to help the FBI is directly correlated with their view of the agency. When an FBI agent is trying to recruit a source to provide critical national security information, the willingness of that person to help and to possibly sacrifice in order to help the United States government is directly correlated with their view of the FBI as a trustworthy, honest uh, force. And that is what's being you know, essentially put at risk here, where you have a president who's saying, no, these people are corrupt. They're, they're out to get me. This is a rigged system. This is a witch hunt. And what's interesting is that I, this isn't just, you know, it's not just us talking theory. I mean, there's polling that suggests that some of this is actually taking root. Just earlier this year, it was Gallup that, that came up with uh, they came out with a poll talking about confidence in the FBI. And I don't so much I don't care so much about the Democratic side. But what's interesting to me is the Republican side, because, you know, if you think about the quote unquote party of law enforcement, you know, people who are predisposed to support uh, not the Democrats don't. But when you think about law enforcement, you think people that are right of center. I know in the FBI, it's an organization that hews conservative. Um, but of Republicans that were surveyed, less than half had confidence in the FBI, and that was down some 25 points over a couple of years. So that tells me that the narrative is taking hold, at least among that set, you know, possibly the president's base, that they're starting to believe this nonsense, that the FBI is corrupt or, you know, they're out of control. Now, did the FBI make questionable decisions? Absolutely. You know, 2016. Were there some bad actors up there? Yeah, absolutely. I think the inspector general, uh, you know, took that issue head on. Uh, but but that doesn't speak for the entire organization, where if you look at the flip side of what you know the Trump administration has been doing as far as just constantly going after Mueller, constantly going after the FBI, they're working to undermine the credibility, again, without even appreciating or maybe even caring about what those long-term consequences are. So I say all that to say, you know, seeing this and feeling this inside the bureau, people were just so frustrated and so furious about what the president was doing you know, people were asking, well, who's going to speak up for us? Who's who's going to step up and say, no, this is the FBI I know. This is the organization I know. And I looked, you know, we can only do we can only speak for ourselves. But I surveyed the, you know, the field and the bench wasn't that deep as far as people actually stepping up to say this needs to stop. Here are the reasons why. And so I came to the realization and this wasn't a flip decision. I, I didn't make the decision when Comey got fired. I mean, I continued on. I was a career agent. Um, but it was really down, you know, Pat, in late 2017 when the attacks just continued and he actually had the president standing uh, ready to board Marine One saying, you know, telling the cameras and an international audience that it's a shame what's happened to the FBI. It's, you know, that, that, that was too much to take. And so what I decided, OK, I can only speak for myself. I don't want to just stay in the organization, keep my head down and watch it continue to just take, you know, the, the, so many slings and arrows and then look back 15 years from now in retirement and say, well, you know, I kept my head down all as well. Uh, so I made that painful realization that the, the, the best way for me to uh, really explain the FBI to the American people is on the outside and not on the inside. And I think that's the only right way to do it. You wouldn't want FBI agents on the inside anonymously going to reporters and, you know, talking about the administration and the White House. I mean, that's a slippery slope that down that road is, is danger for the organization. And so I just realized, I came to that realization that I can do more good on the outside uh, explaining the organization right now and, and not defending it because, you know, the Bureau can defend itself. But whenever it comes under attack to explain the difference between a righteous criticism and pure politics. We'll be right back after this.
Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. What do you think about those that are critical of people like yourself, people like John Brennan, people like Jim Comey, who have become or at least in their argument, overtly political as, as a way, as an argument that you guys are reinforcing the narrative that there was this cabal that was against Donald Trump, the kind of the deep state argument, because I, I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can understand why people see people like Clapper and Brennan and you and Ned Price and Jim Comey, who are so vehemently against the administration, reinforcing and kind of building into that narrative, something that people can point to. I mean, you, you mentioned that you needed to wait to get out. You're certainly not Peter Stroke or Lisa Page, you know, being when you're still in the FBI. But there there seems to be uh, this is almost like just handing over an easy argument to be made for people that may not have an argument otherwise. Yeah, I see that. And let me just take issue, if I can, with one thing you said there as far as people like me being totally against this administration. I am not. I'm I'm not against the administration. I'm not even against Donald Trump uh, writ large. I mean, there's some policies that, that I actually agree with. I'm independent minded enough that, you know, I could look at issues. I can look at people. I've supported Republicans. I've supported Democrats. Um, I used to work through the Republican Party, you know, back in the day before I joined the FBI, you know, in college. And so I'm not predisposed to uh to ridicule what's going on out of through a partisan lens. And so I, I think it's important for people to understand that. What I'm doing is looking and saying the actions of people who happen to be Republicans that are in power, and that's President Trump, that's Devin Nunes. Again, I don't I don't care what party they are, they all happen to be Republicans, but they control the levers of power. And with that power comes great responsibility. And that is also, you know, that also includes criticism whenever they misstep. And so what I've been trying to do, because, you know, we all have our, our areas of areas of expertise and our areas of interest. And what I've been trying to do is when I see these political attacks against the intelligence community, when I see these political attacks against the FBI, is to stand up and say, look, this is nonsense and to explain why. And so I don't just criticize uh, just, you know, for criticism's sake, I don't, you know, I don't say people are, you know, people in power are bad people. I say the decisions that they make are causing corrosive long-term consequences for public safety in the United States. And if people see that as criticism of the entire administration, then I think maybe they're looking at it through too much of a partisan lens. So that's what I want to say first. Secondly, to the point about people speaking out, and I don't necessarily put myself in uh, the category of 
you know, Brennan and Clapper and, and Comey, not only because nowhere, you know, I was nowhere near as, as senior as, as them, um, but also, you know, my role now at, at CNN isn't, I mean, there's, there's an analysis role and then a reporting role. And so what I'll do is look at issues and say, okay, this, you know, let me tell you what I think about this and then, you know, gather information that, that might be in the public interest. So my, my entire orientation in life is not, uh, is not about, criticizing Donald Trump. It's just whenever he's talking about issues that I know, uh, I know what he's saying to be factually inaccurate, and I know what he's saying will cause long-term damage, I'm going to speak out about it. Uh, and that's what I'm doing. And then the last thing I'll say on that is that when I look at people like Clapper, Comey, um, when I look at people uh, like Brennan, and people, and I understand the point that, that you're making here, that you, know, you raise about, well, could people see this as maybe proving the point of their detractors? But what I would ask you is, what is the alternative for these people who have spent their lives dedicated to public service, who these people have spent their lives in intelligence, and these aren't partisans. These are people, again, who have dedicated uh, their careers to the national security space, to working on tough issues, to protecting the American people. You know, what is the alternative for them when they see what's going on now? If they stay quiet, then the narrative continues to take hold, and people don't have a counter view about what the president's saying. But if they do speak out, then it allows them to at least speak from, you know, a, a, a position based on experience because they've been in the space. But also, again, these are people who love the organizations that they're speaking on behalf of. And so, again, I, I just don't know what the alternative is for someone who's, who's, who's spent a career in government to look at someone coming in and trying to destroy these institutions and norms and not speaking out. I don't, I don't understand how people can sleep at night, uh, you know, if, if you didn't speak up. You've talked about words making a difference in the way people perceive the FBI. We've seen now recently where words have been accused of making a difference when it comes to inciting violence. And and in this case, I'm now talking about the mail bombings of uh, now a week ago or a little over a week ago. Uh, are we Are we not paying enough attention as a society to internal terrorism threats? I mean, we seem to be having this conversation again and again. I mean, you're, you're, I'm going to age you. You're too young to remember the conversation after Oklahoma City, but the conversations we've had every time since there's been a major domestic terrorism incident seems to be, why aren't we paying more attention to this? Are we at a point now where maybe we can shift that focus? So it's always difficult to talk about uh, in the wake of, of a deadly incident, incident to, or and even potential deadly incidents, to talk about, okay, well, this is, this is limited in scope. This isn't really a widespread you know, uh, problem because, again, it, it's, the response is so visceral. We're still grieving uh, for what happened at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. You know, we'll, I'm still thinking about my colleagues at CNN who were evacuating the New York City office uh, because there was a pipe bomb in their building, right? And so, fortunately, these things haven't happened a lot. We don't see that, but but I think that you know, looking kind of to the point as far as you know how widespread an issue it is, and then even taking a step further about what to do about it, I don't think that we should ignore the impact that words have on segments of the population. And again, this goes back to people in power. The President of the United States, Donald Trump, is the most powerful person in the world. His words matter. When it when he's whipping people up and you know he's calling the press the enemy of the people and you know inciting his people to, into just you know whipping them up into this rage, then obviously he bears some responsibility for the narrative and tone. Now there's been this debate where obviously the White House came out uh, right after the attack saying you know how dare you say that we're responsible for any of this, and I, I just I think that they're they're whistling past the graveyard here and not really 
appreciating the power of the presidency and and you know the impact that his words have on people that are predisposed to act on violence. He's not he's not liable for this person in Pittsburgh who went and shot up a synagogue. He's not 100% liable for a person who was sending package bombs who just happened to have pictures of Donald Trump all over his van, but he does bear some responsibility for the tone that he sets in America and I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that again, if you're an elected leader, if you're a person in power, you are treated differently. Your words matter and you have to appreciate that with leadership comes a certain following, and if a certain number of those followers are predisposed to act with violence based on you know the, the tone that you're setting, then you have to assume that responsibility. And the reason why we assume responsibility is not just so we could say, okay, we figured out who you know who's liable. It's so we can nip these things in the bud. Like if you look at a, the public safety issue that we have in the country right now, when it comes to uh, you know some of the language, some of the tone, I don't look at it through a political lens. I look at it through a public safety lens. And, you know, if leaders don't check themselves and don't bring down the temperature, then, you know, again, they have a, a role to play in, in, in the public safety conversation. I just think it's, it's, it's a missed opportunity by the White House. They, I think they could have come out and said, look, we understand that there's this population out there. We understand that, you know, tensions are running high. There's, a, you know, things are very toxic. Here's what we're going to do to help alleviate that. That would go, that's, that's leadership. We haven't seen that. I think something missing from some of the conversation about these, these mail bombings were Oh, is the fact that I would argue if it wasn't for the first several bombs being sent to insanely well-guarded people, meaning the Obamas, the Clintons, then the the alert wouldn't have been out for places like CNN, for individuals that don't necessarily have Secret Service protection. And obviously, people were on high alert after there were bombs sent to the Clintons and to Obamas. I'm wondering... And, you know, kind of frighteningly wondering if the first bomb had been sent to Robert De Niro or to CNN in Atlanta, and maybe it would have gotten through if it wasn't for the fact that everyone was on high alert. And so I think the people that are kind of saying, oh, none of these went off, none of these were a big deal, uh, are, are missing the bigger point. Right. I mean, if you think about – you mentioned the the package that went to De Niro. So the reason that that was intercepted was, as you mentioned, because people already knew about the others. And there was actually a retired police officer who was working security at that facility who saw the media reporting, saw the pictures on TV, and then remembered seeing this package and then put two and two together. Uh, so you're right. If that would happen in, in a reverse order – uh, it, it may have been a lot different. I think that, you know, one, one argument that I've seen that, again, I understand that people posture, especially in the political realm, they try to distance themselves from, uh, you know, from any responsibility when, when these thing, kind of things happen. But I don't think the conversation about the efficacy of the device is as important as the conversation about what this person intended to do. So none of them went off, right? 100% failure rate if that was his intention. We don't know if he was actually intending for the devices to go off. As, an, as a former investigator, when I see a 100% failure rate, that tells me that maybe that wasn't his intended goal to actually uh, detonate these devices. But regardless, he still caused fear. He still terrorized. This is an act of domestic terrorism in my view because it appears that it's happening for a political reason. And so I, when I hear that, people say that, well, nothing, it didn't really go off. You know, it, this is crude. This guy's an idiot. He's a, you know, he's a wacko, I think the president said. Um, then I think they're missing the point that, look, this still caused terror. It still caused people around the country, uh, you know, to stop. I, I, I remember, I mean, not, not just to get to from financial standpoint, but I was I whenever these uh, packages started being found, I actually uh, went out to New York uh, to cover the the case from there, and 
there were so many suspicious devices being found throughout the city. You had the bomb squad that was rolling 24-7. There was one restaurant that they had a suspicious uh, backpack outside, had to close the place down. They lost $70,000 in one night. Um, so, again, these things have, you know, these cascading consequences that people just don't really appreciate. And it all goes back to what caused this person to do what he did. And that's the conversation we're not having. It's the second, third, fourth, you know, fourth order effects. Um, but I, I just don't buy the notion when people say, well, it didn't go off. So, you know, maybe it was crude. Maybe this guy didn't know what he was doing. He still inflicted a lot of terror in this country. And I don't think that's a conversation we're having right now. Let me ask you a couple more questions and we'll let you go. Um, I made it a point on SpyCast not to talk about the Mueller investigation. I'm going to wait till it's over before I dive deep, just because I think it's only fair. This is an investigation that has been so exceptionally good at not letting information out that they don't want to let out. And so anything I would deal with would be just speculation. So I'll take a deep dive when it's over. But I have to ask you about the clown show surrounding the Mueller investigation that popped up this week, where the FBI was brought in because of people trying to discredit the Mueller investigation through false accusations. And it and it, it's laughable if it wasn't so problematic. No, you're right. And I think to call it a clown show is exactly right. I mean, talk about, well, let's, let's first talk about what they were trying to achieve. They were trying to have us believe that Robert Mueller, one of the mo- most straight-laced people on the planet to a fault, uh, somehow went out and did all these bad things that no one knew about. And it just so happened that these people are the ones that are uncovering it, these people that are obviously fringe partisans. So setting that aside, I mean, obviously the you have to, consider the source, um, but also just the mechanics of it. I mean, I know I used to travel with Bob Mueller. I used to travel with Jim Comey. I mean, one of the allegations that surfaced was that he was, you know, he somehow managed to make his way down to a bar and try to, uh, you know, pick up a woman and then brought her back against her will to his hotel room. And I mean, even as, as again, someone who's, who's traveled in the orbit of the, 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 direct, the bubble of the FBI director, I know that that's just complete nonsense because, there's, A, there's no way the FBI director slips out of his room. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like a fortress whenever he travels. But again, everything about that is just ridiculous. One thing that that does make me smile a little bit um, is seeing how this thing just completely imploded and actually seeing how adept Mueller's team was. And this shows, you know, again, how we're dealing with professionals. We're not dealing with Keystone cops that, you know, you had this group that was saying, stand by. We have this uh, this allegation that's coming out against Mueller. And Mueller's folks actually preempted that by saying, oh, no, no, actually, we, we've already referred this to the FBI. This is nonsense. And so, again, that, that made me smile a little bit, just realizing that they, you know, they beat him at their own, own game. But, again, it shows that there are people out there that, you know, that run in these fringe circles that have no integrity. And, you know, they'll do whatever they can to try to discredit people that they perceive to be their enemies. I think it's a, it's a pattern that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I can understand trying to discredit the investigation, trying to put the Mueller team on the defensive, kind of give themselves, you know, put them in a hairy situation. But just how blatant and naked the the, the lie was here uh, is, I don't understand. It, it, it seems so counterproductive to me. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I don't know, I don't know what the end goal was. I mean, so okay, so so if if the goal is to say that you know, Bob Mueller's a womanizer. It's like, well, you know, what, what, what does that get you? Like you're trying to discredit his, I mean, that has nothing to do with his investigative abilities. It's just, you're trying to say he's a bad person and not for nothing, but you know, 
obviously, you know, the president's been on tape, you know, bragging about sexually assaulting women. So, I mean, it, it, I mean, the whole thing is it's, it's just so ridiculous. And again, I, I, I don't think it was well thought out. I don't know what the end goal was. Maybe we'll learn. Maybe we won't. I hope uh, these people get a visit by the FBI and that they don't just skate away, you know, and move on to plot and, and destroy someone else. Um, but it'll be interesting space to watch. So let me ask you one question, a big philosophical kind of waxing philosophic question uh, that, that interests me. Uh, you know, you've run human sources, an FBI agent, you know, secret human sources, hoping that what they told you wouldn't become public to protect those kind of resources. And now you're a journalist, kind of like the other side of that issue, because you have sources that are actually helping you make stories public to the American people and to the people around the world. How hard was it to make this transition? Like, how do you square these two mindsets? Yeah. So first, you know, I uh, just a, just a, a point on terminology. So I don't I don't really like to use the word source. I didn't when I was in the FBI. I don't now, you know, now in journalism, because source to me involves, you know, it's transactional in nature. It's, you know, it seems kind of one sided. OK, someone's going to give you something and you're going to benefit from it. But what I try to look at both when I was in the bureau and, and then even now as a journalist is, is really looking at it, you know, I call them contacts. It's, it's really looking at, it at what's the, what's the relationship here? What's the two way um, exchange of information? Obviously someone is going to give you information as a reporter uh, that may inform a story, but then you also can't lose sight of what is motivating that person. Is it because they're really, um, they have concerns about what they've witnessed and they think that, you know, people should know about it. Um, is it is it a sense of okay they they want the public to know that you know these intelligence agencies are doing what we want here's an example of of some of these things so again I I, I try to focus on on the the two way street there um, but then also and I hope people understand this and I think you know most journalists are like this is I don't start my day thinking how am I going to find some you know juicy scoop or juicy nugget uh, that's going to make me look well connected. I start my day thinking, okay, what information have I learned about that is in the public interest? And, you know, you mentioned the philosophical. It is very philosophical. I mean, I think about it right now. I know things that I would never publicize based on my time in government. First, because I go to jail, right, because a lot of the stuff is classified. But also, it's, you know, it's a, it's a larger respect for the intelligence community, it's a larger respect for the organ for, for you know government writ large that when you sign up to be a public servant, you know you just don't take these secrets that you learn and then go, you know, broadcast them. And so th- that that's an important part. And then secondly, now as a journalist, even when I learn things, I try to run through that mental calculus. Is what I'm learning in the public interest? And what is the public interest? I want to be be able to articulate it. And I'll give you, you know, a couple examples. So, you know, during the course of um of, you know, doing my work now, you know, less than a, less than a year now in journalism, you know, we've learned things about what the government is doing and, you know, some things that, that need to be pointed out as far as, you know, alleged malfeasance. I mean, those are no-brainer, right? We're, we're going to publicize whenever the government needs to be held to account. But I've, I'll talk to people who, you know, provide other things that, that maybe are a little more sensitive in nature. So, you know, for example, uh, and, and I'm going to talk about any recent case, but, you know, in, in past months where, you know, I've learned of, of an arrest that's coming up and talking with someone in the intelligence community, arrests at home, arrests overseas. And I think, OK, that is not in the public interest for the American people to know that an arrest is about to happen. We'll report on it once it happens, but there is very much a public safety issue there. First, I want the bad guy to, you know, to be taken off the street, but also as someone who was once an FBI agent who was in the stack at the door about to breach and go in and arrest someone, 
I don't want that other person on the other side knowing that I'm coming. Uh, it's, it's very much an officer safety issue. So I go through that mental calculus, you know, whenever I learn things from, uh, from contacts and, you know, again, try to make that calculation, what is in the public interest. And once, you know, once an arrest happens, we'll talk about it. Um, so, so I, I think that's important for people to understand. One of the things that's been most fascinating for me in coming over to journalism from, uh, from law enforcement and intelligence side of the business is really appreciating the process that is in place before items make their way to television. So I always assume, you know, being on the government side, that a journalist gets something, they take it, they throw it on TV, or they write in a newspaper, and that's it. There is this rigorous process that is in place between the collection of information and when it ever makes it to the airwaves or to print. And, you know, I'll talk about my own experience. I mean, even CNN, you know, if we have reporting, that goes through this rigorous process of lawyers and fact checkers, uh, standards and practice, right? People who think even just because we can say something, should we be saying something? Is there a public interest? And so realizing all that, that that goes in that process, I hope gives people confidence that, look, you know, journalists, they try to get it right. They try to make sure that, that what they learn is in the public interest. And again, you know, I'm not a show for the government. If I learn something that I think the public needs to know, uh, then, you know, it, it's up to the government to, to try to mitigate, you know, whatever that issue is. Um, but again, it comes down to what, what is really in the public interest. And, and there is a calculus in place, uh, you know, whenever someone tells me something and when I actually will talk about it on television. Well, let me end by asking you a personal question. Because you, you went from working in the IC, working behind-the-scenes jobs at the FBI where there wasn't a lot of fanfare, and now you have a job in front of the camera. This has to be madly and wildly disconcerting from t- at times, just kind of being in the limelight when you never were before. Yeah, it's, it's mortifying. So c- going from, I mean, as you mentioned, kind of a, a behind-the-scenes person, uh, to now the the opposite of that, obviously on television, um, it, it's taken getting used to, and actually in, t- in two respects. First of all, uh, it's required um, growing a, a thick skin, you know, in a short amount of time, because you know even when I came over to the to uh, the journalism side, coming from the FBI, you know, there were people out there, and I'm talking about kind of the 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 trolls, and you know, even some prominent. Um, you know, officials close to the president who were saying some pretty nasty things uh, without even knowing who I was. And so, you know, again, you, you just you, it requires that thick skin. And, and I'm not one that like lashes out and it's going to go back and forth. I just let my work for, speak for itself. And then over time, you know, they're, they're proven wrong that, no, I'm not I'm not a partisan or a firebrand or, a, you know, just a fire breather. I'm just there to to, you know, help the public understand what's going on. Um, so so there's that regard. But then also it, it is interesting, like, you know, when you're in the FBI, and I used to laugh, like, you know, whenever I was flying somewhere, for example, overseas, um, obviously, you know, when I'm sitting next to someone on an airplane, they ask what you do. I'm not going to say I'm with the FBI. You know, I try to, oh, I'm with the government or, you know, you come up with something else. Um, whereas here, you don't really have that luxury, but you don't really have that need either. And so in that sense, you know, I get stopped at airports and, you know, in Starbucks and um, that I, I don't know if I'll ever get used to that, but the so far it's been it's been you know positive because people really want to have a conversation uh, based on what they saw you know they saw me talk about on television, and so I I, I enjoy that aspect. Um, I'm not one who who uh, actually likes seeing my fat face on television, right? I know a lot of people are you know that that must be a high. It's not really that. It, it's having the opportunity to talk about these issues and especially to see an issue that's in the national conversation that's taking place and to realize that I have something to add, uh, at least that I think I have something to add that may be helpful to other people. That's what kind of motivates me and that's what kind of drives me. And then the last thing I'll say, if, if I can, uh, you know, to but maybe budding journalists out there or, you know, this is probably a good lesson for life. 
um, whenever I first came over, I was actually talking with uh, uh, Anderson Cooper, and I said, "Hey, do you know? Do you have any uh, any advice?" He said, "Yeah, simple. Don't make stuff up." And that was a great lesson. He said because you know people come on television and you know different networks and like people think that they have to have an answer to something. They have to know, or somehow it's some kind of there's some judgment against them. He said, "Don't be that guy. If you don't know, you don't know." And so, you know, I mean, I try to live by that anyway going in. But that's that's really I think um, helped in this space, especially in the political environment where you know there's so many egos out there, and you know no one either wants to be wrong or no one wants to. Uh, you know, admit that they don't know something is really, you know, not being afraid to embrace that. And I think because I didn't come from journalism, I came from the FBI where we didn't know stuff starting out, right? You admitted that, okay, I don't know something, but I'm going to go figure it out. I think it's really been helpful um, in this mortifying new journey. (laughs) Well, you can find Josh Campbell on CNN. He's a law enforcement analyst. You can check out a lot of his past stories on CNN.com and also check out his Twitter feed where he opines on not only news stories, but other things um, that you might be interested in. I didn't even bring up some of the the more esoteric Twitter posts that you have. We can go check them out for yourself. Are you talking about pictures of my dog? or Maybe what, uh... those or cats in Istanbul and other things like oh, that right. too. But yeah. um, we will have you back soon to talk about more that's going on in the news, and then we'll have you back in the fall because you've got a book coming out. But we don't get, we get ahead of ourselves because um, we want to do it then. So, Josh... Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today on SpyCast. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Vince. True pleasure. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page.